0: The Life of Christ By Rod Anderson Lesson 2 Father, once again we thank you for your word and we're asking you to help us to be patient as we walk through these things and lay foundations, Father. But again, oh Lord, we just desperately want to know this man. Again, not just about him. I I want to know you, Jesus, and I want us all to know you better. So help us to look into these mysteries and let them be unraveled by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, This is hour number two of the life of Christ. We're on Still, I think, Lesson 1, basically. Or I think it's Lesson 1, but it's on page 6. And we just, we're just we talking about his rise from obscurity. And we we're just reading where he was tempted by Satan. I'm going to go ahead and read in Luke 4, and then I want to start here in point 3 in the middle of that page. But I'm going to go back to Luke 4, right after he'd been tempted uh, by the devil. And again, verse 13 says, "...and when the devil had ended every, the complete cycle of temptation..." he, the devil, temporarily left him, that is, stood off from him until another more opportune and favorable time. Verse 14, Then Jesus went back full of and under the power of the Holy Spirit into Galilee, and the fame of him spread through the whole region round about. And he himself conducted a course of teaching in their synagogues, being recognized and honored and praised by all. So he came to Nazareth, that Nazareth where he had been brought up, and he entered the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And there was handed to him the roll of the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, this is where I have to say this afresh here, even if I've said this in other courses. Remember last hour what I said uh, that it would not be a temptation for God to be tempted. Can you... Can you agree with me about that? Can you understand what I'm trying to communicate by that? What, you know, is God going to be tempted with money? He's he's not going to be tempted with money, power, you know, lust, whatever. There's nothing there. The scripture says Jesus Christ was tempted, tested, and tried in all ways as we were. So, of course, he was tempted in his flesh But what that doesn't, doesn't mean just his flesh, body. It means his soul. It means everything about him. I'm saying spirit, soul, and body. He was walking on this earth as a man, okay? Now, when you come here to Luke 4 and you see that he comes into the synagogue for to read and they hand him the scroll of the book of Isaiah, the little bit of Judea history that you need to understand as well is that, you know, nobody just picked up the scroll and read what they wanted to. There were prescribed daily readings that were done in order. Well, just coincidentally, Uh you know what I mean? Just coincidentally, Jesus comes into the synagogue. You do know the Bible says that in the fullness of time, it says, the Greek says that the critical nick of time, that in the fullness of time, God brought forth His Son made of a woman. I mean, at that perfect moment in time is when He came. And He walks and He's led by the Spirit. He comes back by the Spirit and He comes into the synagogue and He which was his custom, but he stands up for to read and it's handed him, they hand him the book of the scroll of Isaiah. Now, Again, this is really controversial what I'm gonna say, but I'm gonna say it anyhow because who cares? (laughs) I want you to, I wanna read it. It says, and there was handed to him the roll of the book of the prophet Isaiah. He opened and unrolled the book and found the place where it was written from Isaiah 61, of course. And then verse 18, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me the Anointed One, the Messiah, to preach the good news, the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to announce release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to send forth as delivered those who are oppressed, who are downtrodden, bruised, crushed, or broken down by calamity, and to proclaim the accepted and the acceptable year of the Lord, the day when salvation and the free favors of God will profusely Profusely abound. Hallelujah. That's the age that you and I live in right now. Say amen, anyhow, would you? We live in the day, in the age when the free, the free favors of God profusely abound. They're everywhere. It's free. But then it says, He rolled up the book, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down. It says, He sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were gazing attentively at him. And he began to speak to them and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled while you are present and hearing. And all spoke, spoke well of him and marveled at the words of grace that came form out of his mouth. And they said, Wait, isn't this Joseph's son that actually says they were upset? But it says, And so he said to them, You will doubtless quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have learned by hearsay that you did in Capernaum, do here also in your own town. Then he said, Solemnly I said to you, no prophet is acceptable and welcome in his own country, but in truth I tell you, there were many, many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the windows, when the heavens were closed up for three years and six months, and so there came a great famine over all that land. And yet Elijah was not sent to a single one of them, but only to Zarephath in the country of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed by being healed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And it says in verse 28, And when they heard these things, all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage. And rising up, they pushed and drove him out of the town. And laying hold on him, they led him up to the projecting upper part of the hill on which their town was built, that they might hurl him headlong down over the cliff. But passing through their midst, it says, he went on his way and he descended to Capernaum, a town of Galilee. And there he continued to teach the people on the Sabbath days. Now, the reason I'm taking time with that is because this is the father's controversial. But what I, is this? Jesus was a man. Okay? He was a man. He was the Son of God, but He was the Son of Man. And everything He did, He had to do as a man. He came amongst us as a man. This is the statement that I heard said to me all those years ago that really made me, set me to thinking. It says, this old, this old fellow said, Jesus Christ found in the scriptures where it was written about himself. Think about that. Jesus found in the scriptures where it was written about himself, didn't he? Didn't he? Revelation knowledge. Revelation knowledge is one of the most important issues of your life. Remember when Jesus confronted Peter, spoke to Peter and said, Peter, you know, he's walking with him and just he turns to him one day and says, Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, well, you're the son of God, the son of man. He says two different things. Who do you say that I am? And he asked him three times, remember, and Peter starts to get a little shook up and he says, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And remember what Jesus then says. He turns to him and he said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you. and there was nothing in the physical has revealed this unto you, but my Father which is in heaven. And then he says this, and it's going to be upon this rock that I'm going to build my church. So he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now again, the understood subject of that passage that I just quoted is not the Catholic Church. It's not Peter. When he says the rock, that he's going to build his church upon, the understood subject of that in any good lexicon is revelation knowledge, that which has been revealed from heaven. So if you can hear that as we go to this, Jesus said, when you begin to operate with that which has been revealed to you from heaven, he said the gates of hell are not going to be able to prevail against you. In other words, when it's something that's in your spirit, that's come from spirit to spirit, you see, in other words, not just some... Cerebrally rehearsed, doctrinally understood lesson. But when you've paid the price, you become a man or a woman of prayer, and you've decided, and you've cried out to God, "I want to know why these things work. I want to know how these things work." Proverbs: If any man lift his voice, if he cries out for understanding, if he lift his voice for insight, it should be given unto him. You know, if you, it's the pearl of great price. It's the, it's the searching after something. It's the, it's, it's the whole principle of discovery. But what I'm trying to get to here in Luke 4 is that I want you to consider, all I can say is consider because I surely like don't want you to believe anything I say unless I can back it up with Scripture. But I want you to consider that Jesus Christ right here at this moment discovered who He was. And I want you to think about why that's possible, very, very possible. Because again, He was doing everything as a man if he was walking in here as God right here, I mean, there's nothing to this. But the other thing is he sits down. Now, this is thing, he reads. this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. But I mean, I've always, I've, I've, you know, I've gone through this so many times over the years. He reads this. And then do you remember the part in the verse where it says, and he sits down? And the eyes of all them around him were, were, were fastened upon him. Do you understand that in the synagogues of those days, even today, well, no, it's not like this in modern ones, but in orthodox synagogues. But in synagogues, you know, there were latticework fences. All the women stood behind latticework fences. Have you ever seen the old film, Jesus of Nazareth? Those incredible videos. And when you see them in there, there's this latticework. All the women would stand behind those. And there was an area in the middle. And there was a the little, the, I forget what they call it, where they keep the Torah, the law and what have you and the, the, the priest, the, the, the leader of the, the rabbi would bring the scroll out and hand it to the person. But everybody stood And any of the good films that if you read jo- the antiquities of the Jews, Josephus, all these hist- histories that you read of the Jews and you read all this stuff. Edersheim's The Life and Times of Christ by Ed- Albert Edersheim, one of the f- best you know, study tools you can have about uh, the background of life as it was in that time. But everybody stood, there was only, but there was one little table, a tiny table, and there was one chalice on it, and there was one chair sat at it. But nobody ever touched it because it was reserved for the Messiah. It was there symbolically. Jesus quotes the scripture and sits down. Well, there's only one chair in the synagogue. (laughs) I'm trying to say, you begin to understand then why the eyes of all of them were fastened upon him. What is this guy doing? Because as later you're gonna read it, as we read they were filled with rage what is who who is this guy that's doing this is this not joseph the carpenter's son are not his brothers and sisters among us so this is a heavy heavy thing and the reason to me that gets so profound is because i've had to learn in my own life that every single one of us here we come back to that identity situation again you do you will never really know who you are until you discover yourself in scripture do you hear me because who you really are is hidden in this New Testament above all. The Old Testament, yeah, but the New Testament above all. And what I mean by that is it's only as you begin to read this Word that God's Spirit has the opportunity to jump out of that Word into your spirit and actually lighten, enlighten you. Again, I, keep, I quote it over and over again, not just to be repetitive, but the entrance of God's Word brings light. You know, where darkness can't stay where there's light. It's just that simple. You can't switch a darkness switch on. It cause light to go, but a match light will cause tons of darkness to depart. And every one of our lives, you see, has dark spots. We've all got blind spots. I don't care how holy we think we are. We've all got blind spots in our life. But this is why I constantly open this book and try to just throw myself before it. And it's like it says in Corinthians, Paul said, we who continue to behold in the word of God as in a mirror... The face of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are consistently being transformed from one degree of glory to another. This is why I'm going to hound you with this until you get mad at me. This is not just a book. If you approach it as a book, you may as well go read a book in the library. Go to to Starbucks and enjoy your coffee. (laughs) This is the word of God. This is God speaking to us. It's got glory and anointing over all of these words. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. It's actually, there's, it speaks of the effulgence. The word is the effulgence of his glory, the outshining, the outreign of the divine. That stuff is on this. That stuff is in these words. And when you begin to sincerely hide this stuff in your spirit and hide this stuff in your heart, you begin to discover who you are because the darkness begins to go, the light begins to come, and revelation comes. Remember the word revelation, apocalypsis, it means to take the cover off. It means. It means something's always been there. It's always been there. It's always been there, but you weren't able to see it. But suddenly it's revealed. In other words, it's not something that's brand new. It's just what's always been waiting. God's plan for the beginning of all time for you is just waiting to be unwrapped. Now, to me, that gets exciting because I've watched over the years, you know, many people's lives get unwrapped. And to me, that's my greatest joy is when I see that discovery take place and I see a man or woman find out who they really are in Christ. That's what just makes me go from here to here with a smile because there's nothing on earth like really seeing somebody birthed into their potential. Oh well. But this is a pattern here. This is another pattern and principle so you have to look at. He discovered, revelation knowledge, I actually believe, and that's the part that's controversial. People will argue with you about that, and especially if you get into around some real cessationists, they'll freak out about that thought. But I just want you to consider it. You don't have to believe it. I just want you to consider it. Okay? Now back to the outline. (laughs) Jesus, like I said, his rise from obscurity. This man seemingly had nothing that made him remarkable until he was baptized in the Holy Spirit. And then this ministry happens. Boom, he's in Cana. And he comes in here to the synagogue. And then all of a sudden, he makes this statement where he says, this day is this fulfilled in your hearing. It blows the minds of everybody. Makes them all mad. And for that point, they set out to kill him. Many want to kill him from this point on because he makes himself out to be the son of God. Uh, there's so many truths about this. I'm trying not to start teaching and preaching here. I'm trying to... Because I, I know I've got to run through a lot of stuff. But uh, anytime any of us in the body of Christ begins to discover even a little bit of who we are, it will make religious spirits really angry. Trust me. It just does. It just does. I mean, the moment you begin to walk up right before God and you actually have a, begin to carry a little heaven-sent authority, it really... People will look at you... They'll call you arrogant... Uh, when you begin to walk in authority. There's a a big difference between walking in arrogance and walking in authority. Authority has a boldness about it, but it's not an arrogance. But people who don't understand will always look at you and call you arrogant. All I'm saying is, at some point, you come to the position where you make the decision, I have to live unto God, and I can't live bound by the fear of man. That is, if you want your children healed... If you want your marriages successful, if you want your businesses to prosper, if you want these things to go like God intends them to go, you have to get delivered from the fear of man. And part, the very first place, the very first lesson that you learn when you start getting delivered from the fear of man is you begin to find out, God wants you to be bold about who you are. But again, please find out who you are. (laughs) And you find out who you are by looking in a mirror, by looking in a mirror. What do you see in a mirror? a reflection of yourself. I just quoted it it back in in 2 Corinthians 3. As we continue to behold in the word of God as in a mirror the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are consistently being transformed from one degree of glory to another. In other words, every day you open this book and you look into it. But he, you know, Paul's talking about the glory that was in the face of Moses there in Corinthians. Remember, and he said... And do you remember that when Moses went up on the mountain and came down, glory shone on his face to such a degree that the people bade him not, you know, put a veil on your face, Moses, because they were, they, but Moses didn't know. Moses did not know his face shone. Now think about that. There are 2 million people there that he's got there down at the bottom, bottom of Mount Sinai. We're going to go to Exodus in a little bit. Look at that. One. Well, maybe. <laughs> but the point is, if there's some 2 million people he's got there, Moses comes down from this mountain, he's, you know, this mountains quaking with fire, there's this sound of thunder, there's this, the heat of a blast furnace, it says, and the blowing of trumpets, and fire's coming off this thing, and Moses walks up into the middle of it. That kind of freaks all the boys out, and he comes back down, like I said, and he's got this stuff, rays of light coming off of him to the point that it scares everybody, and again, he did not know it was on him. Well, would you agree with me that if that was to freak out that many people, that must have been something? I mean, it must have been something to have that much glory from having been in the presence of God Almighty Himself. But Paul in Corinthians says that the glory that is in the face of Jesus Christ makes the glory in the face of Moses to be no glory by comparison. That's exactly what the Scripture says. If I was to go and read it to you. Now listen to that. The glory that is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ is so great as to make the glory that was revealed in the face of Moses to be no glory at all. By comparison. In other words, as you and I look into this, you see, it's the, it, one, of the most, one of the easiest ways to say something else about this is this. You may not realize that you're changing. Moses didn't know that his appearance had changed. But if you keep at this stuff, I guarantee you, people who know you will see something changing. Because it begins to happen. There, there's a fire in this stuff that begins to get off on you and get on your face and get around you. And you just carry something. It, it, like I said, the things of God are weighty things. And when you begin to believe and actually become a believer in these things, there's a, and I don't mean just <laughs> being overweight, <laughs> I mean, you, there's a weightiness about your words and about your strength and about what you do and when you walk into a room. You carry something with you. These old men of God and old women of God that we love to read about, as I say, like a Wigglesworth and what have you, these people carried something with them. They didn't have to say a word. When they walked into the room, it changed the whole atmosphere of the room. That's what J. Oswald Sanders used to call He He said the true definition of a real spiritual man is just that. He said when he walks into the room, the very atmosphere will change, not by what he says, but by who he is and who he knows. And see, that's something that all of us have at our disposal. And that's what I, I'm just telling you. This nation is desperately in need of people who know God, not just know how to quote a lot of scripture. This is, this is what I'm after. I'm trying to somehow find a group of people that will actually understand that it's worth paying the price to get into this thing and to get on their knees and to say, I'm not leaving till you bless me. I'm just not letting go of you until you bless me. I may have a broken ankle afterwards, but I'm not letting go. My old spiritual father told me never trust a man who doesn't limp, and that's the truth, spiritually. If you've ever been, in, if you've ever been, if you've ever locked horns with God, you'll come away with a limp. And I'll let you figure that out. You'll figure that out in a couple of years. He spoke with authority. This man Jesus, as he comes back, it says that one of the things the Scripture says about him over and over again is that he spoke like no man spoke. One of the first things that impressed people about Christ when they heard him was the authority with which he spoke, although there was a remarkable tenderness in his voice, and see, this is what I, uh, uh, although there was a remarkable tenderness in his voice, at the same time, there was a strange directness about his words that pierced the very hearts and consciences of men. When on the mount, people were struck not only with the simplicity of his words, but with the authority. Matthew seven verse 28 and 29. And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings that people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority, not as the scribes. Following this sermon on the mount on Sermon on the Mountain, when Jesus came to Capernaum and spoke on the Sabbath day, the re- the record says, and they were amazed at his teaching, for his word was with authority. That's Luke four thirty-two. And then the last paragraph of the page, soldiers, hardened by their occupation, were affected as much as any by his presence. When the religious leaders and the priests heard about the stir that his ministry was making, they sent officers to take him. And the officers returned without him and said in John 7:46, the officers answered, never. I mean, these guys, these are the officers, remember? These are Roman officers that have been around centurions and all manner of... Of, of military situations if you, you know, if you studied the history of Rome. But it, they said when they got around this man, he wasn't, it wasn't because he was yelling. <laughs> it was because of the weightiness of his words. And they said, never, never man spake like this man. I mean, picture them looking up at at at, at Pontius Pilate and trying to communicate that, this, this man is different. There's something about this man, no man has ever spoken like this man. This was something that everybody that was around him knew. When the soldiers came to arrest Jesus after Judas had betrayed him with a kiss, <laughs> this was after the depth of his consecration in garden, but he said, I am he, and I love that. It says, and they went backward, remember the scripture says, and fell to the ground, John 18, 6. As soon as he had said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Think about that. So much power and authority is in his words as he just stands and says, I am he, that it blows men back onto their backs. Think about that. See, I don't know about you, but I'm still too childlike. I love that kind of stuff because that's who I serve. And he lives in me and He lives in you. And that same authority, you know, once we get to all these other passages of Scripture and these other courses, that, that is in you. That is in you. But this is why we're going to, like set a guard on our mouth, watch the words of our mouth. There's, there's things that we begin to walk in. There's a discipline that we begin to attach ourselves to, not just so that we can be seen by men, but because there are lives to be changed. And we have to quit making excuses for why things don't happen when they should be happening. But again, these things don't happen just because you find out a formula about authority. Authority is something that's earned because of the taking of responsibility. You've heard me say that over and over again. Maturity begins with the acceptance of responsibility. Maturity begins with the acceptance of responsibility. God offers responsibility, but he will never release truly the authority until he sees somebody that makes a decision to accept the responsibility. It's the way it is in business as well. No good businessman will give somebody responsibility without giving them the authority to carry it out. It would be stupid. But when responsibility isn't taken, the authority that's offered is pulled back. And it's going to be given to somebody else who will actually take the responsibility. This is why we have to take responsibility for our own lives. We have to take responsibility for our own families. At some point, pastors have to get on their face before God and actually ver- vote verbally get before the Lord and say, I accept responsibility for this church. And the difference in the level of authority is incredible. You can see it within months. I've seen it over the years, much less when a pastor learns how to take responsibility for a whole community. Because the greater the responsibility, the greater the authority is necessary. But God has to find somebody who means it. You hear me? As opposed to somebody that says, this faith stuff, I think I'll try that. You don't try it, God. <laughs> you don't try it. You don't try it. When the army officer charged with oversight of the crucifixion witnessed the death of Jesus hanging on the cross, he could only exclaim, truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake... And those things that were done, they feared greatly. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Point number four, Christ, the Bible tells us, he knew the innermost thoughts of sinners and gave forgiveness to them. Hallelujah. Now, this is something else that we're going to Get to John 2, 24 and 25. But Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men and needed not that any should testify of man for he knew what was in man. This next paragraph, it's important to me. Sinners loved, sinners loved to be near Christ. I know that to be true. When I wrote this, I remember sitting down when I first typed this all, what, 18, 20 years ago and I wrote this thinking to myself, you know, sinners loved to be around Jesus. I know it. Not because they felt at ease in their sins, for his presence made them painfully aware of their sinfulness. But somehow in him they saw cure for their maladies and problems. They saw in him their deliverance. And I wrote this down. I said, what do people see in us, I wonder? When people are around you, are they more aware of their sins than they are aware of his love? To me, that's this is why, like the first course I teach every year is the love walk because it's my life message, that, and like I said, this thing about the grace of God, the goodness of God, is because you've heard me say I've been, lot, I've been around a lot of major ministries, and I'm telling you, it just freaks me out sometimes in some of the large churches that I've been in, and even some of the largest churches in this land, that uh, when you walk in their offices, like I say, and I'll be talking with the staff and churches that maybe have 25, 35, 45 people on staff, and they're all fine, and I'm talking with them, everything's cool, but when the big dog walks in, it's like they go rigid, and it is not with respect. It's with fear. There's a fear on them. I mean, a fear. I mean, they're like, oh my God, because if we do one thing wrong, you can do it. Just the room is filled with this atmosphere of like law. And again, to quote Dr. Cole all those years ago wherever there's much law, there's little love. But where there's much love, there's little law. And I tell you, the people were the reason my life was changed. Is because I was surrounded by God's great grace. God brought people into my life that saw through all of my lies, all my stupidity. They saw every stupid thing about me, but they loved me anyhow. But I never felt rejection in the midst of correction. I was corrected by some of the best. <laughs> but I mean, I was there. I just felt like I mean, even when I was being rebuked, I've told you stories about like Dr. Cole here and. When he came, when I was his European director, uh, his first European director, Dr. Edmund Lewis Cole, was in heaven now here in London. And he, he loved Wimbledon, and Nancy, his wife, loved Wimbledon, and we'd travel around a lot and speaking in Europe and here. And he had all these travel points and mileage points and stuff like this, so he had enough points that he was, uh, anyhow, he was in the Savoy Hotel, you know, very well-known hotel here in London with all its finery. And we had an afternoon off, and it was during the American football season. And he said, hey, Rod, you want to come up to the hotel room and let's just watch some football? I said, sure, it'd be great. So I go up to this hotel room with Dr. Cole on the top of the Savoy. Beautiful little suite that they've given him because of all the mileage and stuff he's got. And I made this mistake, you see, of looking at Dr. Cole, who is one of my heroes, you know. And I said, Dr. Cole, I said... Uh, Okay, because I believe in. I really. I've always believed in severe accountability. I really do. I've always, and I don't just say it. I've got people I talk to every single week in America, and there's a two, there's two people here that I talk to. But I, I looked at Dr. Cole and I said, "Okay, Dr. Cole." I said, "You've known me for a long time now. We've been together. What's stupid about me now?" And I always tell people, "I wish he could have waited at least 30 milliseconds." <laughs> But I said, I mean, in about a millisecond, he had this crooked finger, this prophet's finger, and he put this finger in my face and said, Rod, he said, you're one of the most negative men I've ever met in my life. And for the next, I'm not exaggerating now, four hours. Four hours, four hours. He ripped me from, I mean, he shredded me. I mean, like, shredded me. But this is the point. When I left that hotel room to walk down to get the car to drive home, I felt like a child that had been given an ice cream cone by his dad because of the spirit that this man carried. He was such a father that he, when he, he could look you straight in the face and it wasn't one of these. It was just like with this glow in his eyes, this Jesus that was in his eyes and the love that was on his face. And he just, you just, you know, correct me again, slap me. do I mean, he had this something coming off of him. And it's like Ed Savoso, who I still count as one of my mentors right now. Ed, when I'm with him, like when I get to drive in places and I'm with him for a couple hours, Ed Savoso has this way of uh, whenever I'm with him, he makes me. This is the thing. And Ed, see, I consider Ed Savoso to truly be a modern-day apostle. I think he's probably, possibly one of the wisest men on the earth today. Really, I do. He is truly a master strategist in the body of Christ. Incredible man. Incredible wisdom. I mean, oh. oh, oh. You listen to the, to the wisdom that he has when you're with him in a small group in particular. But when you're with him alone, my experience with him over the last five, six, seven years, whatever it's been, is every time I'm with him, I come. he just starts asking me questions about me and that smile of his, this wonderful Argentinian way of his. But, but I come away from there and he makes me feel like I'm possibly one of the most important men in the world. <laughs> You know what I mean? He's got this something. He never is about himself. It's always building you up. And I'm just saying, I remember I, got, I came away from him once, and I came into Julie, and I had tears in my eyes. And she said, she said what's wrong with you? And I said, i just been with Ed. <laughs> and I shared with a little bit, and I turned to her, and I said, you know, I said, it just struck me. I said, I feel like just to a little degree, I know just a little bit of what it must have been like to have been with Jesus. Really? Because this man, wiser than me, and a million billionaires, wiser than I'll ever be. Um, I'm just trying to say, you see, this is what true ministry is. All true ministry proceeds from the spirit of the man, not from the head of a man. It's not how much doctrine you know. It's like I've told people for years. It's not doctrine that changes people's lives. It's the person of Jesus Christ. What we're trying to do is introduce people to the man, Jesus Christ not just to some story about him, not to the teaching of faith, or the teaching of prosperity, the teaching of healing. That's all part of it. But first things first, Proverbs says, put first things first. And first of all is that he wants us to fall in love with him for who he is, not for what he can do. But this is what hit me here. This man who spoke with such authority, he knew the innermost thoughts, of your entire life. He knew what what was in the hearts of men. But yet nobody, no sinner, no sinner in Scripture felt rejection coming out of him whatsoever. I mean, you felt acceptance. And you've heard me say this over and over again, but I believe if there's one word that's the hallmark of his entire ministry, it is that one word, acceptance. You felt accepted in his presence. Uh, I'm just saying, you see, what do people feel around you? This is the question I have to ask myself hard questions at times. Do they feel more like I'm here to show you where you're wrong? (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, Am I always trying to one-up somebody? Am I always trying to make sure they know I know a little bit more than they do? Or, Or am I more like Jesus who knows that he carried more authority than anybody on the planet ever walked in, and yet it was not a big deal for him to bow down and wash his disciples' feet? And he said, this is the example I'm leaving you. If you're going to be a follower of me in the Jesus Christ style of leadership, you're always going to have to understand that you're going to have the opportunity to enjoy bowing to people of lesser authority than you have. Because that's what we're called to do. I came to serve. I came to serve. I'm just trying to say, you see, I, I want us to get to the heart of what ministry is about and the heart of what this Bible is about, not to just a bunch, like I keep saying it, forgive me for saying it so often, but just not a bunch of doctrine. We've had a lot of doctrine, and we've got a lot of people that have got a lot of soulish knowledge, but they've got no life. There's no power emanating from them. There's no real authority just because they think authority comes from knowledge of Scripture. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's not the tree of life. Listen, the tree of knowledge of good and evil is what 95% of most of the body of Christ operates in. That's knowledge of good and evil. That's people who are so right that they're wrong. But there's all the difference in the world between having academia and having life. And that's what we're trying to say. Is that That's the hallmark of the difference between this man, Jesus, and just a bunch of stuff. Anyhow. What do people see in us? I wonder, are they more aware of their sins than they are aware of his love? And you know, this is, isn't that what really makes you wanna be around somebody? Seriously, who do you wanna be around? Somebody that you feel awkward around? You all know somebody. There was a study done many years ago about uh, uh, actually in uh, uh, major universities and seminaries, even secular ones, and they they asked students after five years, six years, seven years after graduation, who was the professor, who was the lecturer that impacted their lives the most. And um, I can't explain how they did it all. It was, this was a, this was a this, I'll tell you where I got this deep revelation. This is Reader's Digest <laughs> years ago, but I've kept the article somewhere. But they said that 201, that, uh, that they said that the person, the teacher, the lecturer, the professor that impacted their life the most was not the one that had the greatest ability, but the one they said who loved them. The one who they were able to go to. And if you'll think in your own life, if you hopefully have that, hopefully in every one of your lives there's somebody you can remember that was just there. You know what I mean? They were just there. You see, he wants all of us to be one of them. (laughs) You know what I mean? Just to have a listening ear. Not a critical eye, but a listening ear. Somebody that's not always trying to put themselves forward and talk about how much they know because that's what real Christ-likeness is. Christ-likeness is what we're after here. Okay. John 4, 18, here's where he dealt with the woman again who at the well, and it says, he said to her, For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, and that thou saidest truly. The woman at the well heard Jesus say these words, yet didn't feel condemnation, nor did she sense despair. <laughs> typo evidently so kind and compassionate was his voice that she saw hope and forgiveness in the very one who just called attention to her sinful past her testimony to her neighbors carried such conviction that they also came and believed that quote this that this is indeed the christ the savior of the world john 4:42. okay so now if you bump to the next one now here like i said we're just going to have to race through a lot of things for a moment Uh, So the next three pages, I'm literally just going to read them to you. But again, these are things that in a four-year Bible college or something, these are just the basics. But again, the deity of Jesus Christ, there are divine names. These are several of the divine, in fact, well, these are the divine names and titles that are in Scripture that are ascribed to Him. The following list of divine names and titles given to Jesus proves that He is by divine nature a member of the Godhead. And He's called all these, God and Emmanuel, Lord. He's called Lord of all, Lord of glory. Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Christ the Lord, the Son of God, His Son, My Son, the Only Begotten Son, the First and the Last, the Alpha, the Omega, the Beginning the Ending. The Lord, the Son of the Highest, the Bread of God, the Holy One of God, the Holy Child Jesus, the Deity of His Christ. The next page, it says, continued, the divine character that's, that's ascribed to Jesus Christ. All ordinary men are sinners by nature, but Christ is. And, of course, here's all the references, and you can see why I don't want to read every one of them because we'd be here all year for eight hours just literally reading the Scriptures. But I wanted you to have the Scriptures at least because my. in past years when I actually taught this at the actual Bible school, I want to tell you, many times afterwards, the students would come back and tell me how much they referred to some of this. So you may just throw it away, but there's stuff here if you want to. <laughs> He's... His character, he was holy by birth, righteous, faithful, true, just, guileless, sinless, spotless, innocent, harmless, obedient to God and to his earthly parents. He's called zealous. He was meek, lowly in heart, merciful, patient, long-suffering, compassionate, benevolent, loving, Self-denying, humble, resigned, forgiving. Now, other than maybe the first one, maybe that all of you can be. That, that Maybe that's your character attributes. What I'll do is, the, the way you really find out about somebody, remember I always tell you is, you know, I never ask you, I ask the three people closest to you. <laughs> that's how you find out about somebody. But we we'll say, well, how many of these fit me? Anyhow, no. <laughs> but the works of God, if you'll look at all these, if we were in a school, take your time and, And look at these so that you actually see them. And again, like I keep saying, you may think it's just boring, but it isn't. There's something that begins to happen. See, God knows the hearts of people. When God senses real hunger, I love in Matthew 14 and Matthew 15, Matthew 16, when Jesus feeds the multitudes in Matthew 14, three days later, he feeds the multitudes again Uh, and then Matthew 16 he refers to it but when the multitudes come to him Jesus looks out at him remember and he says I'm not willing to send them away hungry I love that about him if you can just capture this his looking as he looks out at some 10, 11, 12,000 people I am not willing that they go away hungry now the reason I'm saying that is because I don't know you can't teach spiritual hunger you're either hungry or you're not but you can be honest. The thing I love about the Lord is, and I used to tell my students all the time, is just be honest. If you're not hungry, listen. God's, you know, He loves us so much. Just be honest. Just tell Him, I'm really not hungry. <laughs> I'm curious. See, a lot of people are curious, but they're not hungry. Big difference. The Bible says He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek, not a rewarder, not a rewarder of those who casually inquire. You hear me? It's like we teach you other things, you can't you know you feed your spirit man, one hot meal on Sunday morning, maybe a cold snack during the midweek. you feed your flesh three meals a day, and you wonder why your flesh has the ascendancy over your spirit. Okay? But the point is, tell him, "I'd like to be hungry." That's prayer. Just I'm a candidate. I'd like to feel what it's like to be hungry. Because what I'm saying all that to say this. God will never allow somebody that's hungry to go unmet, you see. And if something, if I could somehow, somehow, I don't know, um, get you to the place where something uh, fuses lit, where something sparks, something ignites, where if nothing else other happens other than that you go away and you say, I actually want to understand this stuff. And I want to know you. I really want to know you. Don't care so much about that American dude and his teaching, but I want to know you. (laughs) You know what I mean? If, If we can even get to there, you see, then your life will change because he will meet you as an individual. God is a God of individuality. He will meet you where you are and speak to you in your language because he knows, like it says, the hearts of men. He knows exactly your location right now where you are in your spirit, you see, the true you, not the one that sits before me tonight. I'm talking about the one that's there when you're all alone. Because the true you is the one who you are when you're all alone. It's what goes through your soul consistently when you're all alone that determines who you are in your future. And this is why somehow, way, like I said, if we can get you into the incubatory process of the spirits, the things of God's spirit, you see, we'll transform who you'll be when you're alone. I'm going to say it again. It's who you are when you're all alone. It's who you are when you're all alone that will determine your whole future. It's what you constantly think about and give your attention to when you're alone, when you're by yourself, that will determine true and real character. Personality is the outward show. Personality is what you appear to be. Character is who you really are. It's like when people get very, very old and they end up in rest homes. The only thing left is character because personality is gone. Hear me? Personality has gone. That's why you'll get in there and you'll find these people just yelling and screaming cursing and stuff because everything else was a facade but the older you get the personality goes that which is in the spirit is what remains and see god wants us to be so full of him in our spirit that this it just floods out of us like it says in romans 15 that we are filled with joy and hope and believing to the point that we bubble we bubble over with hope Remembering, I know they always laugh at me, but i got—I got to do it again. I love that verse, that you might be bubbling over with hope. And I tell all my students all the time, you know, you should be so full of God that when somebody just pokes you in the tummy, there should be big old bubbles coming out of you. Just go, hope, 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 hope. Everywhere you go, you just carry these bubbles of hope. You're just a bubble machine. And the Bible says, except you be as a little child, and I qualify, okay, so... <laughs> But the works of God are ascribed to him, so read these scriptures. Divine worship was given to him. Can I throw something in there, though? I've got that, and it is true. Divine worship was given to him. Angels and men both worship him, but they both refuse all such worship for themselves. But, you know, even Jesus, did you know that you can't find a scripture where Jesus ever accepted praise from man? He always returned the praise to the Father. In fact, he even said, you know, why callest thou me good? There be none good but my Father. Just an interesting little side note. He never accepted praise. He turned it right to the Father. Of course, because he did that, because it was in his humanity. Anyhow, point D, his name is associated with that of the Father and the Holy Spirit as being one of the three divine persons in the deity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinity. I mean, that's still a great war, even today, still in theological seminaries, whether or not there's such a thing as a Trinity. Give me a break. Point E, equality with God in divinity is definitely stated. Okay, point F, divine characteristics are ascribed to him. Now, and any of you have a Schofield's Bible by any chance? Do you ever, no, I don't mean with you, but I mean, do you have, do you own a Schofield's Bible or Dake's Bible? Finnis Dake, the guy from Scotland. Dake's Bible is incredible. Uh, it's all the Bible studies in the back of that, all, all is. Dake wrote a book, I don't, I might still be in print, called God's Plan for Man. If you're really interested in stuff, some off-the-wall, but I'm not not off-the-wall. i mean, some incredible studies of things that you never hear anybody else teach on. He's got an old book called God's Plan for Man by Finis Dake, F-I-N-I-S Dake. That's where he'll teach you, he'll show you, but in, the reason I brought that up is in Dake's Bible, this guy was such a finite, what they call biblicist as far as studying stuff. He, he lists the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He'll list something like, and forgive me, my numbers are incorrect, all right, but I'm just... I'm just giving you a a guesstimate because it's been so long since I've looked at it. He'll list 140-some characteristics that the Bible lists of the Father that does not list them about the Holy Spirit of Jesus, 137 that are listed to Jesus that are not listed to the Father or to the Holy Spirit, and then about another 140 to the Holy Spirit that are not. I mean, he shows so definitively that they are three, but they are one. I mean, just just interesting stuff. Oh, well, that was interesting to me. (laughs) Anyhow, And we've got three minutes here. If you turn the page real quick. Or did I turn too too fast already from that one? Nope, I'm sorry. Wait a second. Yep, no. Point F divine characteristics are described to him. Then the next page. These and many other names and titles in Scripture prove the deity of Jesus Christ. Some of these are used hundreds of times in Scripture. We must believe in the divinity of Christ if we're going to believe the Bible. Of course, that goes without saying. But these are some of the divine offices that are ascribed to Him, Jesus Himself. Even as we quoted at the beginning, when we read out of John 1 about how all things—just man, I, you know—I'd like to camp there for a year. All things that were made were made by Him, and without Him, there was nothing made that was not that was made. I mean, you know, man, I get to I get to walk with the Creator. See, I just kind of like that. He's pretty creative. Divine office is ascribed to Him. Creator, you find that at John 1, 3, Colossians 1, 16, Hebrews 1, 1, and 3. The office of mediator, He's spoken of occupying that office. Head of the church, Ephesians 1, Colossians 1. Savior, of course, 2 Peter. Judge, 2 Timothy. Preserver, Hebrews 1. Life giver, John 10 and John 17. Lord in Christ, Acts 2, and of course the resurrection and the life in John 11:25. 25. These and many other offices and works of Christ prove him to be divine and one with the Father as part of the deity. He is called in Zechariah the fellow, so I'm sorry, he's, it's John. He's called the fellow and equal to God as to divinity. Okay, anyhow, now we're gonna have to stop there, like I said, because that gets me to the place where I can actually start next week, what I wanna start. <laughs> Amen, let's pray. Again, Lord, I just want to thank you. We just simply, I don't mean to be, well, what the heck, you know me anyhow, so it doesn't make any difference. I just want to know you, and I thank you, Father, again. Please, Holy Spirit, spark something in us. Please do what it's impossible for me to do. Spark the interest of these people. Whether or not even some of the visitors tonight are able to come back, and it's understandable that some can't, Father, but spark in them regardless. Something that causes them to say, I need more. I I want more. I'm going to dig deeper. I'm going to go further because I know that you are. I don't want to be found frustrating this great grace that's been offered me. I don't want to treat it as nothing. I want to take advantage of everything that's been paid for and purchased. So, Father, I pray in the name of Jesus Christ that you and your great patience would lend us some of that patience, as it says in Scripture. where it says that we must be followers of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the Scripture, inherit the promises. So, Lord, please grant us a real spirit of seeing and knowing over the next few weeks as we look at this walk, and as we walk through these parables, that we might see some of the depths of the wisdom of your Son, this man Jesus, who we call Lord, who we follow. Jesus, we do really want to follow you in your footsteps, and we trust you. We trust your name, and we trust the fact that you've given us your very spirit. So we thank you for your great patience with us in Jesus' name matchless name, Father. Thank you very much. Amen. You have reached the end of this lesson. Please insert the next lesson to continue.